The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. If you're an Episcopalian or an Anglican, chances are you've probably heard by now of the release of the landmark project on human sexuality and marriage, living in love and faith. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry, we'll answer that today in detail, because today we're going to dive into this project with one of its architects. Living in Love and Faith is a suite of resources just put out by the Church of England. It includes videos, a book, study and teaching materials. And what does it do? Well, it does a lot. For one thing, It outlines the parameters of the project, which are open-ended, and it shares the results of a lot of research, history, and storytelling, from theological, anecdotal, traditional, scientific, sociological angles, lots of angles. And it begins to really closely analyze the sources of convergence and divergence between people who have differently formed consciences and viewpoints on marriage and sexuality. For one example, it takes a really insightful look at views of scriptural authority. Today, we get to hear from the Reverend Canon Dr. Andrew Goddard, who was part of the team who built Living in Love and Faith. He is a member of the Church of England Evangelical Council. He is assistant minister at St. James the Less in Pimlico. He's also tutor in Christian ethics at Ridley Hall in Cambridge and Westminster Theological Center. And he's interviewed today by the Reverend Canon Dr. Jordan Hilden, who is the Canon Theologian for the Diocese of Dallas, and has also served on the Task Force on Communion Across Difference and the Task Force for the Study of Marriage. Living in Love and Faith is not a project intended to give answers. And that may be, well, it will be frustrating to some folks, but it's just not the goal of the project. So what is the goal of the project? What is the end game? How do the people who directed the project hope it will serve the church? How might it likely relate to Lambeth 2022? Is it really new or is it just a bunch of old news packaged in a really cool new way? What has it uncovered exactly? And how can people from diocese to local congregations use it? Let's find out. Andrew, thank you for being on the call. Thank you very much, Jordan. It's great to be with you and great to have a chance to talk about living in love and faith. And I've learned a great deal uh, by reading the book, which is, I believe, 468 pages long. And uh, by watching the videos, uh, which are excellently produced, there were, I think, 16 or 19 um, uh, really professionally produced videos uh, from different voices in the Church of England. Um, there's also a library of podcasts, which I have not listened to. Uh, I understand that there is an online library of, uh, of papers. Uh, there are a number of conversations um, uh, that you can see both in the podcasts uh, between people who took part in the process. And I'm probably missing something. Uh, uh, what am I missing in the, in the suite of materials of living in love and faith? 
you've done pretty well there. It is very much a suite. It started out, uh, as you may recall, being called simply a teaching document, and it's grown into a whole range of teaching and learning resources. I think the main one that you didn't mention was the course, which is a five-part course, um, which is uh, available to be done using a booklet, but has also got, again, very well-produced um uh videos uh for people to do them using those to work through uh the different things that are discussed in the LLF project it's basically a, a highly condensed uh coverage of some of the issues that are covered in much more detail than that big 400 odd page book and i understand that you will have just uh finished teaching your first session session of that course how did it go it was very good. It was slightly strange, having been very involved in actually uh, developing the course and seeing the different um, stages of the films coming together. It was great to actually have a group of people uh, sitting down to uh, do the course uh, together and to take them through that. Uh, we're doing it over the five weeks that the course um, uh, lasts for, and we're hoping to uh, run it amongst the, uh, the leadership of our own parish church here uh, at Easter time. The, uh, the church is encouraging people to use the course basically throughout this coming year. Is it right to expect that virtually the whole uh, Church of England, every parish, is going to be going through this course uh, in one form or another? I doubt you'll find every parish doing it. Obviously, we are doing it in the context of the pandemic, uh, which really is not conducive for having discussions uh, around these issues in many ways. Um, but it is uh, that the whole church is being encouraged to engage in some way with the materials as part of a year-long discernment uh, process, which isn't just to involve the bishops or the members of our General Synod, uh, but to involve clergy and laity uh, across the whole of the church. So quite a lot of dioceses have already had a study day for clergy and other leaders to give them a taster of the course so that they can then think about how they might use it. And many more dioceses have those coming up in the next few months. I, I saw on the Anglican Communion News Service uh, that this may be the largest research and consultation project into identity and sexuality carried out by a Christian church. Could you say a bit more about who was involved in the process? Um, how long did it take? What did you all do? Yep, I'm happy to do that. It might help to give a, a little bit of backdrop as to where it came from in that the Church of England, like many churches, has obviously been uh, wrestling uh, with these issues and discerning what God is saying to us for, for a long time in different forms. And we had uh, a report known as the Pilling Report that was put together and it recommended shared conversations. Those conversations took place across the church on a much smaller scale than what we are now uh, hoping to do with living in love and faith. And they were also very much a chance to share personal experiences and listen to one another without an enormous amount of um, scholarly, theological, biblical input. And the bishops then made a proposal as to what should happen next, and the General Synod, or strictly speaking, the clergy in the General Synod, uh, narrowly voted not to, as we call it, take note of what the bishops were recommending. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, in a sense, the Living in Love and Faith project uh, had to think about what now to do. And as I said, it started as a teaching document, it then has changed over the course of three to four years into the suite of resources in which we, we gathered together um, 40 to 50 um, scholars and church leaders who 
initially worked in small uh, groups focused on academic disciplines. There was one on scripture, one on history, one on science, uh, and uh, one on doctrine and ethics. They were coordinated by the group you mentioned that I was a consultant on. Um, and um, after that group produced a lot of papers, many of which are in that online library, um, we set to on producing uh, the book. And uh, again, uh, lots of people were involved in that. It went to and fro amongst all the bishops in the Church of England who saw drafts and were able to comment. They were outside readers. It was a massive collaborative effort. It's really extraordinary um, how much work uh, must have been involved in putting something of this magnitude together. Can you say a bit more about why it was felt that this, in this form, was necessary? Because just from just from the outside, it almost looks as though, well, there was the Pilling Report in, in 2013, and then there was a series of, sh- series of shared conversations, and then um, a teaching document or guidance from the House of Bishops in 2017 that wasn't taken note of by the clergy. So then what's the point in doing it all over again? How is it different? How is it? How was this seen to be a response to, and not simply a repetition of, a process that wasn't seen to have worked before? Great question. I think it's different in uh, a number of ways. Um, I think uh, it's different because uh, it is bringing together, as I said, academics from a range of different backgrounds to bring their expertise, to offer that to the church, for the church to learn together um, around uh, the questions of identity, sexuality, relationships, uh, and marriage. And it was a sense that although we had hoped, if you like, that the shared conversations would enable a clear consensus to develop and that the bishops obviously thought they had probably developed that, it became clear that that hadn't happened, um, that our differences and disagreements were in some ways therefore more serious perhaps than we had realised, that going ahead by forms of just ongoing debate uh, between different fixed positions was probably not going to be constructive. And so stepping back and taking some time to try and get a sense of the bigger picture, to not just focus in on the contentious divisive issues, uh, but to reflect more on what it means to be human, questions of theological anthropology, to think about our theological method and why some of our differences here come down to deeper questions about how we uh, hear from God and understand God's purposes for us. But that sort of work was needed if we were going to uh, be able to find a way through our differences. And the hope and the prayer is that the work that has been put in to produce the resources and then the work that we pray we put in this year in engaging with resources and listening to one another uh, may enable us to find a better way forward, having hit a bit of a a bump, at least in the road, uh, three or four years ago after the shared conversations. It struck me that what began life as, uh, as a teaching document, as you referred to, um, has really become something distinctive, different from uh, previous teaching documents um, in kind, perhaps, uh, from uh, from the House of Bishops of the Church of England. First, because it's not really a document at all. There is a book, but there's all this whole suite of things. Yes. Um, and it strikes me that it's in, in tone and substance, it's a bit more like, let's say, a college class or a seminary class, that I could use this to, I could use this to teach at a church-related school, for instance. I would, uh, I would be sitting back and 
in helping students understand how different views, for instance, on the authority of scripture um, shape uh, different presuppositions. After that, I would be talking about identity and sexuality. I would be listening to the science. I'll be talking about dignity, all of these things, and not actually coming down in a landing spot um, on a number of hot button issues, but instead helping my students think about them more deeply and understand the presuppositions at work behind them. So that strikes me as something rather different, teaching in a more pedagogical sense than a teaching document in a traditional Episcopal sense, uh, where the bishops say, this is the teaching of the church. Do you think that's right? No, I think that's right. And it's fascinating to hear you describing Jordan the way it comes across. Uh, and I think the way you've described it is uh, what we hoped in many ways uh, we would be able to provide for the church. One of the issues at the beginning was, uh, well, the language of Episcopal teaching document had been used in that uh, proposal by the bishops that the House of Clergy didn't wish to take note of. So it had a certain uncertainty about it. But it was also language which on reflection wasn't language we often use in the Church of England. I'm not quite sure if it's regular language um, in the Episcopal Church or other parts of the communion, but Episcopal teaching document, uh, it, it wasn't as if there was a sort of um, style of those, a standard of those, something of what uh, involved, you know, we know what a papal encyclical is, but a, a, a teaching document from the House of Bishops, there was one on marriage back in uh, about 2000. But on the whole, that sort of language hasn't been used. And it was clear that um, having the bishops simply issue a statement as bishops risked having the same problems as their statement uh, after the shared conversations, and that we needed to step back, and all of us, bishops included, needed to take time to listen and to learn. And um, we, at one point, we talked about hoping we would produce something in terms of a book um, that would uh, be a sort of cross between a, a coffee table book and a textbook. And um, you've picked up on that textbook language, which is encouraging. I think it's also important to say for those who haven't seen it, uh, you can download the whole thing free from uh, the Living Love and Faith website. The, the, the 468 pages are a, a fairly large print, multicolored, uh, laid out in ways which, if not quite a coffee table book, aren't a sort of standard standard church document of paragraphs and statements and so on. And although it does make clear the Church of England's teaching, you're right, it doesn't make proposals as to what should happen next. It, in a sense, lays out different understandings to try and enable mutual understanding and respect, and we hope also enable a clearer way forward together. I wonder if that might be a good segue into the material of the book itself, which I certainly want to get into. Hmm. Um, the first portion of the book focuses, um, especially chapter three, on the received teaching of the Church of England. And if I have my facts correct, uh, that is spelled out most particularly in a document called Issues in Human Sexuality from 1991, um, and then uh, reiterated in Some Issues in Human Sexuality in 2003 which, uh, to summarize drastically, uh, if I'm correct, restate the traditional teaching of the Church of England about the nature of marriage and human sexuality, but then also make space uh, for the conscience of, uh, of same-sex couples that dissent from that teaching and recommend what's called pastoral accompaniment of persons who, who do dissent from uh, the received teaching of the Church of England. Which, which I think is a way of saying, here is, here is the teaching 
we welcome you and love you even though you dissent from the teaching. We do hope to accompany people um, on a path toward what the teaching expresses, but we're certainly not going to impose that on them. Um, is that would you like to say more uh, about what the the present teaching and practice of the Church of England is? Thank you. I think that's a, a fairly good summary of um, issues in human sexuality, which, as you say, is still uh, currently the document, particularly in relation to um, uh, gay and lesbian people and same-sex couples um, that the Church of England refers to. Um, I think it's important that in in living in love and faith, uh, you're right, part one of the uh, the book is about what we have received, uh, and chapter three uh, is the fullest articulation. But it's very much focused on what we have received in relation to marriage. And I don't think, from memory, it, it refers to the more recent documents you've referred to, but it refers to uh, the Book of Common Prayer uh, and the canons of the church and the liturgy uh, and, and so on. That's where we, are, we find our, our doctrine um, of marriage. Um, we do pick up issues in human sexuality and the questions uh, arising out of that um, later on. And those are some of the questions that the, the church is going to have to revisit to see uh, whether or not what is laid out there is uh, to continue to be the teaching and practice of the church, which, as you say, commends those uh, who uh, understand themselves as gay, same-sex attracted, and who uh, understand that they are called then to live a, a celibate life, but recognises that some in conscience reach other judgments, um, and uh, that they they should be welcomed within the church, but then puts restrictions uh, on that in relation to uh, those who are ordained. Um, subsequently, those who are ordained have been um, permitted to enter civil partnerships, though not civil same-sex marriages. Um, but they should be uh, able to give assurances that those civil partnerships are not sexual relationships. And obviously, because of that teaching, the Church of England uh, currently does not have any authorised service for recognising, celebrating or blessing uh, same-sex relationships. One thing that I picked up from watching the videos, which again are terrific, they all begin with um, a little tagline, uh, many voices, one church. And at the end, everyone in the video says, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm living in love and faith, or we're, so, we're this couple, we're living in love and faith. And again, the videos are extraordinarily diverse. There are transgendered persons who tell their story of transitioning, some uh, single and some in couples. There are homosexual persons um, who tell uh, the story of coming out and coming to terms with their sexuality. There are, there are also um, heterosexual married couples who simply tell the story of their long, faithful, and fruitful marriage. There are persons, and this is interesting to me, there's one video that describes the story of a vicar who experienced same-sex attraction as a young man, but then uh, after a conversion experience to the church, I should say, began a marriage uh, with a woman, uh, which he recounts has been long and fruitful and successful. Uh, there's also a young man uh, studying to be ordained uh, who says that he's he is same-sex attracted, and at the same time, uh, his understanding of scripture and the tradition of the church uh, is that he's called to be he's called to live as a single man. So it really doesn't go in one direction. So I say all this, um, Andrew, because I feel as though anyone watching the videos, I'll just speak for myself. When I watch the videos and I see many voices, one church, we're all living in love and faith. 
there's a great emotional pull, I think, to want to find some kind of solution that keeps all of these many voices in one church, living in love and faith together. But it's very hard for me to understand. <laughs> um, and I suppose it is in the Church of England too. It's hard for me to know how that could be. Um, what, what, type of, what type of path forward might preserve that? Thank you, Jordan. And it's great you've obviously um, watched um, certainly most, perhaps all of those um, personal story videos that are each about four or five minutes long. Um, and those are also part, an integral part of the course um, that we were talking about as well, because again, it's important that those voices are heard and reflected upon. And they do present when watched and listened to and prayed through as a whole exactly the sort of challenge that you have just described. Um, they are many voices. Uh, they are currently, I think I'm right in saying all of them, part of the one church in terms of um, the Church of England. They're certainly all part of the one church in the sense of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The question, uh, though, is, you know, what does it mean to have not just the different theological ideas, but the actual uh, lived experiences and self-understandings that are so diverse and i think i've heard several people say watching them so ultimately some of them at least um uh mutually incompatible uh in terms of accounts of how god uh, might be uh, leading and teaching individuals and the church as a whole what would it mean if i if i had all or even a, a small sample of these people in my congregation together how would that look what does it mean for them all to be part of and to be looking to the church of england as their spiritual home and that really is the the challenge i think that we are are wrestling with as we go through a discernment process using these resources um do we keep our current teaching and practice and discipline um which some of those who are in those films clearly are not living uh, fully in accordance with and do not wish the church to have. Um, if we uh, change, what would we change it to, where the theology and the scriptures of the book are, are so important? But if we do change it, then others who are in that film may no longer feel that the church is able to support them in what they understand to be God's calling. Yes, it's uh, it, it must be an extraordinarily challenging uh, path forward. Uh, it's, I mean, it certainly has been for us mm, uh, in indeed. the church. Um, so I, I will hold you in prayer as this continues, uh, truly. Two Episcopal preachers meet the lectionary, meet a lot of gospel, meet a little bit of snark. If this sounds up your alley, tune into the Same Old Song podcast and get help with your sermon prep week to week with a podcast that's preacher tested, and so I've been told, Thomas Cranmer approved. Join the Reverend Jacob Smith and the Reverend Aaron Zimmerman as they break down the lectionary texts for each coming Sunday with gospel insight, a few appropriate slash inappropriate cultural references, and a heart for the sufferer in the pew and pulpit. Just go to Apple Podcasts and search Same Old Song. I wanted to move to the um, the second section. There's so much we could say about the second section because it um, it's about what's going on. Uh, simply mm. listening to what um, and trying to understand the trends, new uh, new scientific research um, about marriage and sexuality, focusing on England, of course. Um, but many of the same uh, issues and trends uh, are just as real on this side of the Atlantic. I wanted to just bring out a couple of highlights. 
I noted, uh, or the report notes, I should say, uh, that in 2017, the average age of men at first marriage in England and Wales is 38 years old. Um, and for women, it's 35. Uh, these figures have been rising steadily uh, since the 1970s. 50.5% of the UK population over 16 uh, were married uh, in 2018, which represents um, a 75% in men and 69% in women drop since uh, 1972. Uh, one statistic that I really couldn't um, not bring up is that in a 2018 survey, Anglican and Roman Catholic uh, respondents, um, 82% of them considered premarital sex to be not wrong at all. So it seems as, um, and I should mention too, uh, uh, the, the increasing um, attention paid uh, in reality of people uh, transitioning uh, in gender identity, uh, estimating that somewhere between 200 and 500,000 now exist uh, in the UK, and this may be too low of a number. There's many things that one could say about those uh, statistics and realities, but one thing that it seems to say to me uh, is the Church of England's traditional teaching, um, as it's explicated beautifully uh, in the first part of the book, certainly seems to have difficulty finding resonance, let's just mm -hmm. say, not only in uh, uh, the broader culture in which increasingly people uh, aren't marrying at all. I should say also uh, that the, the declining trends in fertility are quite striking as well, so that the UK, like the United States, is now well below the replacement rate somewhere around 1.7 uh, births per woman. But so not only the culture uh, is turning away in certain ways uh, from marriage uh, and, and child rearing, uh, but, but the, the very members of the Church of England themselves, 82% of them, uh, don't seem to think uh, that the Church of England's teaching on marriage has a great deal of, let's say, uh, let's say persuasiveness. Could you say a bit more about the, the challenges uh, that you've encountered just simply as a pastor and a teacher? Thank you, Jordan. And um, you, you, you've captured well there what, what the book, in a sense, is doing, and that uh, we begin with the received teaching and its biblical basis and its development within tradition, and then we, we face the stark realities of the context that we find ourselves in. Um, and in a sense, the questions then are, well, what, what does all this mean for how we minister faithfully, uh, but also pastorally and relevantly um, to um, the, uh, the society of which we are part? Um, and um, you've, um, your, your reference to the age at first marriage was slightly through me, and I found, I found it on page 68, and I'm wondering, I suspect, and I may be wrong, that you have found an error in the book here, which I need to go away and check, in that those, those figures are remarkably high at 38 for men and 35 for women, and I suspect those are actually the ages at, at marriage, not at first marriage. My memory is that the ages at first marriage are in the sort of high 20s um, for men and women now so um but um it is what it says in the book so um you, you were right at that but the book may may be wrong there um in terms of attitudes um those figures you quoted from page 81 i think one thing to stress is that this survey is of uh those uh who self-identify as different categories non-religious mm. anglican roman catholic other christian and and part of 
the 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 English context, which I guess is different from um, the American Episcopal context, is obviously we are the uh, national historic established yeah. church, where yeah. many people, when asked in a survey to state their religion, um, will say Anglican. That doesn't mean, by any stretch of the imagination, that they are regular worshippers, um, that they know understand the church's teaching on areas including areas of marriage and sexuality. So I think that's an important thing to to stress. Perhaps perhaps particularly given our, our different contexts on either side of the pond. Uh, but having said that, um, obviously there is um, a, a major gap between the church's current teaching um, and the way British society is going and the way many who, who look to the Church of England are part of the Church of England in some ways, um, uh, understand uh, how we should live in relation to the areas that living in love and faith covers. And that again, like the different stories, uh, presents the, uh, the the challenge whether we would see ourselves as conservative or radical or inclusive or or whatever uh, of how uh, how do we actually live out what we believe um, as the uh, the resources make clear you know we all of us across our different views see us being called to be holy uh, to uh, be following the way of Christ. Uh, to be listening to how God wants us to live, not just going the way of the world. Uh, what does that mean is part of the question that we face. But then the question of, well, how do we put that into practice? Um, and as you were saying earlier, the the way in which the Church of England currently does it, the way that I, I think and I found myself provides a good model is that of pastoral accompaniment, um, which neither gives up on the teaching nor, in a sense, requires quick and rapid acceptance and conformity of the teaching and the life of someone as soon as they cross the door of the church. It is to do with journeying together, worshipping together, listening to scripture together, praying together, uh, encouraging one another, and seeing God transform lives. I believe uh, that his desire is to transform them into lives that are more conformed to um, what the church has received as the uh, the teaching of of the scriptures. But that is one of the big discussions that we are obviously wrestling with. Yes, yes. There's so much richness that I can't possibly go through it all, but <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to skip over the discussion of identity. Yes. Um, there are so many, just, just I, we could talk about, uh, it's the document's treatment of dignity, uh, diversity, inclusion, exclusion, the reordering of our loves and desires. Uh, I find that um, all of these points, the document gives us gives up uh, some, some shared language and some added depth uh, to areas that have often become stalled and stymied mm. um, in, in conversation. Uh, so I just wanted to read a bit um, and ask you to say more um, about what the document says about identity. Our deepest identity is our identity in Christ, and every aspect of our existence is caught up in that story, including everything that goes into our gender and sexuality and all our relationships. For each of us, the discovery of our identity in Christ will involve challenge and transformation, the conviction of sin and repentance, including in relation to our attitudes and behavior in the areas of gender, sexuality, and relationships. Now, one reason I think that that is so very helpful is that whatever we consider our identity to be, uh, we are told uh, that the discovery of our identity in Christ goes deeper than um, whatever else our identity is, for one thing, and it will involve challenge and transformation. 
um, to whatever we understand our identity to be. Uh, so it's not simply limiting it, limiting it uh, to uh, sexual identities, whether homo or hetero or other, uh, otherwise sexual, um, but our identities. And then talks about the conviction of sin and repentance and the way that it's shaped. How do you see that? I suppose I told you what I think already, but how do you see that um, contributing to this uh, this very stymied and difficult conversation? I hope it contributes in some of the ways that that you've said you see it contributing. Um, in that, uh, what uh, particularly this this section three uh, and maybe particularly this, this this chapter ten about being human is is trying to do is is to step back uh, and to uh, dig deeper. Um, and uh, get ourselves out of some of the um, false understandings we have of the different views that we find in the church, uh, to come back and to find out actually what we have common ground upon, and then to work out what the nature of our differences are, um, despite that common ground, and then ultimately know how serious they are and what they mean, going back to what we talked about earlier, for our life together as one church, if the disagreements go as deep as parts of the book suggest they do in terms of you know, what parts of our identity are God-given in creation, uh, what parts of what might become our identity are signs of the brokenness that God is seeking to redeem and change. And it's important that across our differences, all we believe in what we've been doing in this project, all, all will accept the need for repentance, for transformation, uh, for change. The question is, what more specifically might that look like in particular situations? And again, the film stories illustrate that in that people living quite different lives uh, are often showing that common pattern um, of coming to know who they are in Christ, of, of seeing that changed, even as they then come to quite different conclusions quite often in relation to questions of gender and sexual identity. Um, and I, but I think coming back to those deeper questions um, about what we also call the pattern of dying and rising in Christ, uh, of seeking to find how much we have as our common agreed shared identity um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's really important rather than falling into the trap of uh, just simply saying certain people are conservative and want to squash and exclude people of certain identities out of prejudice or saying that other people are yes. simply following the world and aren't interested in transformation and God's spirit shaking their lives up in some sort of way. Clearly those errors appear on both sort of caricatured sides of the church, um, but we're hoping to show that that's not really what the heart of the debate certainly should be about and we hope isn't about that we can come and find as much common language as possible but then face up starkly to the implications when we try to fill out that language um, that we do so in ways that are, are very difficult um, to see how um, one united church can shape people in such different understandings in, in places. One more substantive uh, issue that I wanted to point toward. I really appreciated the discussion of uh, different views of uh, different views about the unity or coherence and the authority of Scripture. Different views that are afoot in the church, and this is in chapter thirteen on the Bible. Um, and there's this excellent section on page two hundred and ninety-five where uh, the document lays out um, the. Um, the kind of idealized views of of seven different positions. Yep. <laughs> um, 
beginning with, I believe that um, by the grace of God, the Bible is truthful without error, and it's very clear, all the way to speaker seven, who says um, that the Bible is a collection of fallible human voices, um, and we shouldn't uh, talk too much about what God has done to bring them together for a central purpose. There are some important truths in scripture, um, but they are mixed in with all kinds of other materials, some of it horrific. <laughs> and there are five in between those. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and the, the document helpfully points out uh, that we have some disagreements um, that are among people who are fairly committed, let's say, to the first set, like one through four or so of those views, mm -hmm. um, but disagree about what Scripture actually says. But then we have other disagreements between people who commit to you know, that, that higher range of views about scriptural authority, um, and then between people who commit to somewhere in that lower range of views um, about scriptural authority and coherence. But I suppose my question is, if that's true, if there are, let's say, seven different or something like that views um, uh, in the Church of England, and they're quite fundamental, um, are some of those views ruled out or should be ruled out by the actual formularies uh, of the Church of England? Um, and is the church going to have to make some cuts, you might say, um, and clarifications um, about how it moves from scripture to doctrine to practice? Thank you, Jordan. That was a helpful summary of, of, of that, which, you know, personally, I think is, you know, uh, one of the really important um, chapters in the book. And in one of the rare cases of um, living in love and faith, acknowledging the diversity but putting some bounds on it, it said that certainly they're more extreme forms. They, the first viewpoint risks yes. denying the humanity. The seventh viewpoint risks God being at all involved in Scripture. It's just a series of historical human documents. It, it, it notes those dangers. And it then raises the real question as if the Church of England has, as it does have, you know, standards already of doctrine, 39 articles, uh, etc., um, should they not act also as some sort of discrimination within that spectrum of views? And if so, um, where would where would that fall? Um, and it doesn't it doesn't make definitive statements on that, but does recognise that probably somewhere between um, Speaker Four and Speaker Five, there seems to be a significant shift. And I, you know, personally, I think that significant shift does have quite a high correlation, not obviously a one to one mapping, with different views on the presenting issues that the church is seeking to make um, decisions on after a time of discernment. From a very last um, point, I think that's a good segue into uh, into the question of uh, well, what should happen next, and, and where should we see yeah. that? Where do where do you think it ought to go? How do you think, having worked on this book, uh, this project, I should say, not a book, um, for so long, how do you think it should best uh, serve the church's discernment going forward? I, I hope it will have a a longer life than this year and next year, um, because I, I I think it helpfully. Uh, unpacks and we've just unpacked what maybe four or five of the different areas we could have gone into so many others um that the church is going to continue wrestling with whatever happens in terms of um its policies on particular issues around um, sexuality or whatever happens in terms of changes to its structure because of impaired communion because of our differences so i hope that it will have a longer life 
the reality, sadly, is, I think you said, I think you were right, um, the pilling report came out in 2013. Um, it made certain proposals. Those have not been implemented. Many people wish they had been, just as many are glad that they weren't. Many would like the church to go further. Now, we've had many years of um, same-sex marriage. Um, there is a lot of political pressure um, for making some sort of decisions after this period of discernment. Um, and the concern is that if that uh, is pushed too hard, then it, you know, the speed may result in greater fractures than would be necessary were we to spend more time on it. Um, and I think that's that is that is the real risk. Uh, and you know, the bishops may decide that and may at the end of this process um, come forward with a very conservative uh, proposal. If they do, though, you know because it is seen as an important end of a long process that will be very upsetting and distressing to those who do wish to see change. If, on the other hand, um, they make some steps, even quite small steps, not the full embrace of, of um, same-sex marriage that we've seen in the Episcopal Church and, and the Scottish Episcopal Church, um, then there would be many like myself who are more conservative who would find that very, very difficult and would raise questions uh, about patterns of Episcopal oversight, uh, visible differentiation between different congregations uh, and bodies of Christians following the different patterns that living in love and faith um, so clearly, I think, set out. Um, so that is that is the real pressure that we are under. Um, and patience is seen by some as just simply um, a excuse for kicking into the long grass for conservatism, justice delayed is justice denied. We, we know those concerns that are very real and powerful. Yeah. Um, uh, we will have to see what the bishops come up with. And, you know, maybe, maybe in the course of this year and a bit of discernment and using these resources, we will find things that we have not yet discovered that help us come to more of a consensus and less of a fracturing than um, many are concerned will happen once decisions have to be made. Well, I can say that my prayers will be with you all, and I'll be watching, as many of us will, very closely um, uh, you. what you all are, um, are talking about over the next year or so. Thank you so much for uh, taking part in it, and thank you so much for your time with us today. Well, thank you for your interest in it and for your prayers, and uh, uh, we very much appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Join us Thursday, March 11th, when I ask historian, priest, and memoirist Lauren Winner all about why we read, reading as spiritual formation, even when the books aren't that great, and a few of her favorite books. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss it. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.